Good morning, dear saints of Desert Springs Presbyterian Church. It's good to be with uh, with dear friends on a very special Lord's Day. You know, all the Lord's Days are special, but this one I think is especially so because not only have have you given me the privilege of bringing God's Word to you, but I also have the privilege and the honor of representing you by bringing two dear friends into communing membership of this fellowship and then baptizing their two covenant children, bringing them under the spiritual oversight of this body of believers. And on top of that, we get to participate together in the celebration of the Lord's Supper. So it's a good day. We may be here a while, but... Uh, <laughs> It's a good day. Preaching the Word, participating in the two sacraments of the church, it doesn't get any better than that. Well, this morning, uh, we continue in our study of the Old Testament book of Jonah. So if you have your Bibles, if you would open them to our text this morning, it's Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. And we'll be looking at all the way through the end of chapter 2, verse 10. But before we give attention to the Word Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we now come to your word, grant that as you displayed your infinite power to your reluctant prophet Jonah, that even in his despair he prayed to you. Grant that in our despair in our day we would never cease to think and believe that you are still near to us. Oh, Lord, even in our trials, when the signs of your wrath appear, and when our sins drive us to despair, may we still constantly struggle and never surrender the hope of your mercy. And may we, like Jonah, fully give thanks to you and praise your infinite goodness for conducting us through our trials and at last come into that blessed rest which is laid up for us in heaven. We pray this through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. This is God's word. Hear it. Jonah chapter 1, beginning with verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Shoal I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around about my head at the root of the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord. And my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. 
Amen. And thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truths upon our hearts. You know, I had a Christian friend uh, relate to me that a number of years ago when he was flying somewhere, I don't remember exactly where he was flying, but he was seated next to a young woman traveling with her daughter. And he was reading his Bible, which caught the woman's attention, so she started talking to him. And after a bit, she said that she occasionally attended church, but she didn't really care much for the Bible. And he asked her why she didn't like the book that he thought was pretty terrific. And she said it was because it was full of mistakes. There were things in the Bible that she just couldn't believe. So he asked her to tell him one thing in the Bible that was impossible for her to believe. You know where I'm going with this. <coughs> so uh, he told me that he still remembered her exact words. She said, well, I don't believe that Jonah swallowed a whale. <laughs> and apparently she... She wasn't joking. And my friend told her that he didn't believe that either. And then he told her the real story about Jonah and some of its spiritual significance. You know, it, it struck me again this week as I prepared this sermon how strange it is considering all the amazing, miraculous events in the Bible and the fact that superintending this holy record is the God of the miraculous that many people chose the story of Jonah and the great fish as the primary reason that they cannot believe the Bible to be trustworthy. But let me tell you why we should regard this book as trustworthy, as historical, as something that actually happened rather than some fictional account or some parable. First of all, we know that Jonah was a historical figure. You know, Mike just read about it in the Old Testament in 2 Kings. Jeroboam II was a king of Israel, the northern kingdom, for 41 years. It was during the first half of the 8th century B.C. Mike read in 2 Kings 14, verse 25, he restored the border of Israel from Label Hamath as far as the Sea of the Arabah according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet, who was from Gath-Hefer. And since Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, identifies the prophet as Jonah, the son of Amittai, we can safely infer, I think, that this is the same man, that he actually lived in the northern kingdom of Israel in the early to middle 1700 B.C.s. So Jonah was a real guy. He was a real man. Secondly, not only was Jonah a historical person, but also in the New Testament, Jesus treats Jonah's story as historical, as fact. Mike also read in Matthew 12, verses 40 and 41, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man. Be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. You know, those of us who respect the wisdom of Jesus Christ, I think will be very, very slow to call his judgment into question. Jesus thought the story was historical. So should we. You know, if you ask me how a man can survive in the belly of a fish for three days, the answer is, I don't know. He probably can't. Any more than a person can stay three days in the grave and live again. You see, that's why Jesus called it a sign. Matthew twelve thirty nine. he says, You evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Jesus knew that this was no ordinary event. And it was a miraculous sign of God's gracious and powerful intervention in the life of this man, Jonah. You know, there's no point in trying to explain it scientifically any more than the miraculous signs of Jesus' ministry. So I'm not going to go there. I simply know this. Jonah cried for help, and God saved him miraculously with a fish. I believe it happened just like that. I hope you do too. According to Jonah 1, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. You know, to understand, I think, what that meant for Jonah, it helps to remember that about this same time, the prophet Amos. He was crying out against the sins of Israel. And he was saying that God was going to raise up a nation against her, namely Assyria. Now, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria. So just about the same time Amos was prophesying the doom of the homeland at the hand of Assyria, God told Jonah to go preach to Assyria's chief city, Nineveh. Now think of what that assignment you know, might have meant to Jonah. You know, Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse, uh, who was the pastor some time ago of 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, he once said that God calling Jonah to go to the Ninevites was like asking a Jew from New York City to go to Hitler and tell him that God loved him and that everything he did would be forgiven if he would just repent. So this Jew you know, got on a train all right, but he didn't head for Berlin. He went straight to San Francisco. Then he got on a ship to Japan. He didn't want anything to do with that assignment. Well, I think that's kind of the struggle and the tension that we have going on here. Now, most of you remember the general outline of what's happened up to this point. Uh, Jonah didn't go east to Nineveh, which is on the Tigris River. Instead, he hops a ship in Joppa. It's bound, bound for Tarshish. That's probably Spain. In other words, he went in exactly the opposite direction that God told him to go. So God hurls this storm against the ship. 
And when the prayers of the crew proved useless, they wake up Jonah. He, he was asleep in the hold of the ship. They wake up Jonah and they tell him to pray. Then they cast lots to see whose guilt brought the storm. And the lot fell to Jonah. When they ask who he was, he says here in chapter 1, verse 9, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And when the crew asked what might still the storm, you remember Jonah said in verse 12, pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will be quiet, will quiet down for you. You know, I'm not quite sure why Jonah would so readily you know, offer to give his life for the sake of these pagan sailors, when just a few weeks later, he gets angry that God saves the life of 120,000 pagan Ninevites. I'm not sure I understand it. You know, maybe Jonah's willingness to die here in the Mediterranean Sea was, was because of his shame. I don't know. You know maybe he he realizes what a fool he was to try to flee from the presence of the Lord. You know, how can you flee from the Lord who made the sea and the dry land? You can't. And so maybe Jonah finally got it. Maybe he finally realized that. In any event, God has tracked him down here, exposed his folly. His, his guilt is so obvious, he simply surrenders himself to the sentence of death, or so it seems. The crew threw him overboard. Sure enough, the storm ceased from its raging. And what happens next? Well, the first thing that happens, and it's very important that I think we need to see this. The first thing that happens is not the appearance of a great fish to swallow Jonah. That's not the first thing that happens. Before the fish arrives on the scene comes Jonah's cry of distress. You know, even though Jonah knew he was guilty and deserved death, even though he apparently had surrendered his life to the justice of God, yet in the moment when death was staring him in the face, Jonah remembered that the God whom he had served so imperfectly was still a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in, in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. And he cries out to the Lord for mercy. You see, that's what verse 7 says. He remembered the Lord and he prayed for the Lord's mercy. And then the Lord appointed this great fish for Jonah's rescue. The Lord had mercy on his prophet and saved him miraculously in the belly of a fish. Chapter 2 is what Jonah prayed while he was still conscious in the fish. He recounts for us, while in the fish's belly, his cry of distress while he was sinking in the water. And he lifts lifts up at the end of the chapter this voice of thanks to God for his deliverance. You know, I, I think at least briefly, Jonah was conscious in the fish he, he, long enough to realize that God had saved him from drowning in the sea. And during that period of consciousness, Jonah prays, and chapter 2 is what he said. So let's look at this prayer for just a moment this morning. Jonah 2, verses 1 and 2, 
Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. And, you know, I think this is the simple statement that sums up what happened when Jonah sank in the water. He cried out to God. God answered him. He answered Jonah by sending this fish to save him. You know, there's a whole lot of encouragement here that I want us to see. You know, the main, I think the main theme or point of this passage, it's on your sermon notes there, is that God answers his children when they cry to him in distress. God answers his children when they cry to him in distress. I think that's the main theme here. And I think the text gives us some specific pointers of how and why God answers us when we call to him in our distress. I've listed seven of those pointers there on your sermon notes, so you might want to follow along as as we go through them. So let's look at these in order. And and I want us to really read them uh, to encourage ourselves. You know, that when things go south in our lives, and they will, to call on God with a, a lot more confidence. First, God answers our cry of distress even when we're guilty. You know, Jonah was not on his way to Nineveh when he was pushed overboard by the sailors. He was running from God. He was on his way to Tarshish, which is in the opposite direction. He was guilty of disobedience. See, that's why he was in the water. Maybe some of you are in trouble right now. I don't know. Because you're crossways with God. Maybe you're running away from him. And if you're wondering, you know, is there hope? You know, will will God have mercy on me and hear my cries of distress? I think you can take heart. Hear from Jonah. His distress was the fruit of his guilt. But God answered him, gave him another chance. See, this is not just seen here in Jonah. I think it's a principle that we see throughout Scripture. Listen to this scenario in Psalm 107, verses 10 through 15. Some sat in darkness and in the shadow of death, prisoners in affliction and in irons, for they had rebelled against the words of God and spurned the counsel of the Most High. So he bowed their hearts down with hard labor, They fell down with none to help. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and burst their bonds apart. Let them thank the Lord for his steadfast love, for his wondrous works to the children of men. Psalm 107. Or this scene from Exodus 2. Verses 23 through 25, when Israel was in slavery in Egypt. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. They cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God acted. 
He heard. And he remembered his covenant promises and led Israel out of Egypt under the leadership of Moses. You know, if your disobedience is the cause of your distress, then repent of it. Quit running away and cry out to the Lord. He will hear your groaning and answer you in spite of your guilt. Second, God answers us in spite of his judgment. Notice verse 3. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. You know, that's, that's interesting because according to chapter 1, verse 15, it was the ship's crew who picked Jonah up and threw him into the sea. But Jonah knows that these, the ship's crew was simply the instrument. That it was all of God. It was his doing. God was angry at Jonah's disobedience. He wasn't going to overlook it. You know, I suppose nothing makes us despair in our distress like the thought that God put us there because he's angry with us. And if you're like me, and you are, we often say, well, if, if God has put me in this fix because he's displeased with me, you know, what's the point in praying for his help? You know, that's wrong. That's bad theology. Jonah ventured to pray for deliverance from the very God who threw him into the water. And the God who threw him in, threw him in, heard his prayer, and he performed this miracle to save him. Dear ones, even when God is displeased with us, he never brings us into affliction just for the sake of punishing us. God's purposes, hear this, God's purposes are always redemptive. You know, Job 36.15 says, He delivers the afflicted by their affliction. He opens their ear by adversity. You know, adversity is redemptive. It's not merely punitive. And I think we need to lean into that. You know, even if you felt as though the very hand of God is against you in your distress, never despair to call upon Him. He answers His children in spite of His own judgment. Third, God answers us and he delivers us from impossible circumstances. Verses 5 and 6, I think, describe the extremity of this fix that Jonah is in. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at, at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. You know, it's a, it's, it's a terrible thing to fall overboard and be left behind, I think, when the sea is, is calm. How much worse to be thrown into a raging storm with 30-foot waves. You know, feel yourself suck so deep you know you're done for. And as if that, if that weren't enough, as you struggle toward air, you hit this mass of seaweed and you get tangled up in it. Jonah was literally in deep weeds, you know, as the saying goes. It's a terrifying scene. And God let the circumstances become impossible before he delivered Jonah. You know, I don't know for sure why it is, but it often seems to me that in the Christian life, troubles come in bunches. Uh, 
They don't seem to be spaced out in proportion to our powers to cope with them. Well, you know, there's a reason for that. You know, often circumstances develop to the point that we can't see any way out. But that's precisely why we need to remember the fix here that Jonah is in. It was impossible for him to save himself. But it wasn't impossible for God to do that. Mark 10:27. With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. When we cry to God in our distress, he answers us and he delivers us from impossible situations. Fourth, God answers us, I think, often in the nick of time. Look at verse 7. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. You know, I think we might more accurately say, as I was losing consciousness, I remembered the Lord. Jonah was still praying without an answer in sight just before he blacked out. In fact, he he probably did black out and regain consciousness several days later, realizing that he had been spared in the belly of this great fish, that he hadn't actually drowned. You know, it's true, I think, that God often answers our prayers at the 11th hour. Many a saint, I know, have groaned with the prophet Habakkuk, saying, Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help? And you will not hear. Or cry to you violence, and you will not save. Or in the book of Revelation, if you recall, when the fifth seal was opened in heaven, John saw under the altar the souls of all those who had been slain on earth for their witness to Christ. And they cried out to him, if you recall, How long must we wait until you avenge our blood? And they were told, You have to wait a little bit longer. I think Jonah gives us courage to stay in the fight and to be unrelenting in our prayer, to be prayer warriors, to keep on crying out to God even as we go unconscious and to believe that God will answer in the nick of time. Fifth, God answers our cries of distress, I think, often in stages, not all of which are comfortable. You know, I can be pretty, we can be pretty sure that when Jonah cried out to God, he, he didn't say, oh, God, put me in the belly of this fish for three days. He didn't say that. He said, God, save me. I'm driven away from your sight, from your presence. Have mercy. That's basically the gist of verse 4, isn't it? But God's answer didn't come all at once. It came in stages. You know, listen, the belly of a fish hardly seems like salvation. But it was. Jonah is granted enough consciousness to realize that he's been spared from drowning and that there's still hope. You know, there's no hint here in this prayer that he complains about his abode here in the fish's belly. He accepts God's first stage of salvation as a guarantee of dry land. And he concludes his prayer in the fish's belly with that great affirmation at the end of this chapter. Salvation belongs to the Lord. I think we need to get out of our heads this all-or-nothing notion of answered prayer. I think God typically doesn't work like that. 
So don't disregard this, you know, the partial works of God. If he chooses to save and to heal by stages, he has a good reason for doing that. And I think we ought to be grateful for any improvement in our condition. A fish's belly is better than the weeds around our heads at the bottom of the sea. God often answers us in stages, not all of which are necessarily comfortable. And six, God answers our cry of distress in order to win our undivided loyalty and thanksgiving. Now, verses 8 and 9 show how a prayer to God, after he has delivered us, how that prayer should end. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hopes of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now, it looks to me here like the answer to Jonah's prayer has produced its proper effect. It's filled Jonah here with wonder that anybody would forsake the Lord and worship idols instead. You know, God taught Jonah, and he teaches us, that if you leave the Lord, you leave mercy. He's filled Jonah's mouth here with thanksgiving. God answers prayers in order that our thanksgiving will abound to his glory. And I think, you know, that says to me that people who have a spirit of thanksgiving, they're the best candidates to have their prayers answered. You know, Paul says over in Philippians 4, 6, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And he reminds the Corinthians, You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted to us through the prayers of many. And the Lord says in Psalm 50, verse 15, Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you, and you shall glorify me. God answers us in distress, I think, in order to win our loyalty and to fill us with thanksgiving for his mercy. And finally, God answers us in our distress to help us become merciful like he is. I'm probably going to step on Steve's toes here. He he told me to make sure you stay in chapter 2. Uh... <laughs> uh but uh, I got to make this point, I'm going to have to move over briefly into chapter number three. So don't tell him I did this. All right. uh, in chapter three, after Jonah had been vomited back on dry land, God sends him again to, to Nineveh. He goes to Nineveh and he preaches judgment. And in chapter three, verse five, it says, and the people of Nineveh believe God. And then verse 10 gives God's response to that. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. Now look what's happened here in these first three, verse, uh, three chapters. Jonah disobeyed God. God puts him under the threat of destruction. 
And Jonah cries out in his distress, and God answers him, and he gives him a new lease on life. Well, it's the same here with the Ninevites. They disobeyed God. Chapter 1, verse 2. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. God puts them under the threat of destruction. Chapter 3, verse 4. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. They cry out in their distress. That's verses 5 through 9 of chapter 3. And God answers them and gives them a new lease on life. Verse 10. You see, God showed mercy to Jonah so that Jonah would learn to show mercy to the Ninevites. Well, let me wrap this up. Uh, you know, the, the, the book of Jonah, I think, has a message that is loud and clear about God. Namely, that his mercy is not confined to Israel. His mercy extends to any people who will repent of their sin and who will trust him and his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And what saves a person is not nationality, but faith in the Son of God. See, that's a great gospel message. It's coming straight off the pages of this wonderful little Old Testament book. And I think the response of God's people in our day to that gospel message has to be the same response that God demanded of Jonah in his day. Now, God said, Jonah, you be merciful to others as your heavenly Father is merciful to you. Don't you see what I was trying to teach you when I answered your cry of distress and I sent that fish to save you? I had mercy on you in spite of your guilt. I had mercy on you in spite of my own sentence of judgment. I saved you from an impossible circumstance. And I delivered you in the nick of time. I commanded a fish to save your life. And you were filled with a song of thanksgiving for my mercy. And you vowed your loyalty to me. Jonah, Jonah, stew, stew. Be merciful to others even as I have been merciful to you. Remember, you have a ministry of reconciliation to everyone who is willing to hear, regardless of where they live, regardless of their nationality, or whether or not there are enemies. Be merciful to others and tell them all about the Christ who saved you. And what a great God we serve. May he imprint these lessons on our hearts this morning. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. And we pray that you will teach us your ways, how to walk in righteousness and in love and compassion for those around us. I, I pray for all those who are struggling right now in the fish's belly, so to speak, that you will teach us to turn to you in our distress knowing that you will answer us in a way that will cause us to mature in the faith and will bring great glory to your holy name. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.